How do you like the Supreme Court these days? Does it need changing? Do we even need a Supreme Court? What's the purpose of a Supreme Court? I'm Bert Cohen. With your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. A republic, if you can keep it. The famous words of Benjamin Franklin when asked what kind of government the Constitutional Convention gave us in 1787. Now, nearly 250 years later, that question is even more front and center. There are political forces focused laser-like, determined to replace what's left of our Republican form of government with a religious authoritarian nationalism. In their well-funded quest, they have not let the unpredictable, intentionally challenging electoral aspect of our government stand in their way. In fact, for the last 30 years or so, what author Catherine Stewart correctly identified as the power worshippers have circumvented the inconvenient vicissitudes of the popular will as expressed through the electoral process. Instead, they stack the courts up and down the land with far-right judges. And that effort has most obviously included the United States Supreme Court. The decisions of the unelected, unanswerable nine justices of the Supreme Court affect nearly everything that goes on in our country, in our lives, from environmental policies to women's choice over their own bodies. In 2024, the highest court in the land has seriously lost the traditional faith of the public that it is an independent, impartial player. The question is, does the public will matter to the Supreme Court? And what, if anything, can realistically be done to bring the court back in line to the aspirations of America's founders who so prioritized a republic over monarchy or dictatorship? Aside from the obvious electoral responsibility we the people still have, now that the anti-democratic forces have so successfully had their way in reshaping America's judicial system, what, if anything, can be done to rein in what was supposed to be a neutral and wise arbiter of the excesses of the legislative and executive branches? Well, there's a lot to discuss. Our guest today is Rob Wolf, an editor of the esteemed Washington Monthly magazine, and he faces the task head-on with his new essay titled, rather directly, How to Fix the Supreme Court, adding that the time has come to connect popular anger over the conservative supermajority with concrete ideas for reform. Actually making a difference, getting things done. What a concept. In light of so many out-of-touch actions by this unique Supreme Court, Wolf writes, The good news is that the reactionary turn of the court has awakened a sleeping giant and that today's justices, quote, may finally have gone too far and cracked open a window for deeper reform. Boy, that sounds good to me. What reform might work? How can we make it happen? Rob Wolf, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with addressing what the intention has been relative to the Supreme Court and its unique role in preserving the republic. The word supreme. You write, quote, for the court to remain supreme, the idea goes, it must float serene above all external influence, end quote. How has this lofty basis for its legitimacy been affected by recent ethical questions regarding at least two of the justices, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito? 
What caused, part of this question is, what caused Senator Sheldon Whitehouse to see that the proposed code of ethics, which has been discussed, is something new, may be the first chink in the armor of indifference in the fundamental belief that the court has had in itself, its singularity? What, so what, is, what has caused this first chink in the armor? What's going on? Well, anybody uh, reading the news or, or especially reading ProPublica in the past year has noticed a, a rising tide of, of reporting on, on ethics, uh, questionable ethical behavior by the justices, especially Justices Thomas and Alito. Um, you know, they, it's, we've learned in the past year that they've been taking hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of um, uh, gifts in free vacations to 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 Indonesia to Jackson Hole and, and where have you from from billionaires um, um, often um, Republican mega donor mega donor billionaires who um, who later have business before the court and um, in several cases those justices have not recused themselves in those cases and um, when the public looks at this it really reinforces a growing impression that the court, in fact, is not offering equal justice before the law, and that, in fact, some people can get better results with the court if they if they cultivate the justices or perhaps pay them. And the reason that that um, creates such a chink in the armor, or the reason that I I, I played up the um, the court's uh, decision to implement its first ever ethics code uh, this fall. Uh, in my piece is that it had so long insisted that it would never do so, that any kind of outside pressure over ethics was not only unnecessary um, to maintain a, a high judicial ethical standard on the Supreme Court, but that it was actually harmful because it would compromise the independence of the court. That's the idea of a chink in the armor of singularity. And so finally this fall, Chief Justice John Roberts, after insisting for more than a decade that he would never do so, uh, adopted a code of ethics for the court. And, you know, it's not it's not the code has been criticized. It doesn't have a mechanism for enforcement. It's actually in some subtle ways um, a little bit weaker than what the federal uh, the rest of the federal judiciary follows. But it's the fact that they said they did this thing they said they would never do Mm -hmm. indicates that they're that they are not untouchable and that they they are um, susceptible to um, to public outrage. That the public opinion actually does matter. And I'm, I'm reminded, I'm old enough to remember, before seatbelts came in, the car industry insisted, oh, cars are safe. We don't want to, I mean, if we even say that there's any lack of safety in automobiles, then, you know, that that's kind of a chink in our armor as well. And they finally huh. did put the seatbelts in after, uh, you know, a great deal of uh, unnecessary deaths, some real ugly stuff. And again, we have the word supreme. At election time, the right rails against unelected activist judges. And we've heard that over and over again. And I'm reminded, again, looking at history of Joseph Goebbels, who advised his boss to say, say of the others, what is true about yourself? So here the right is saying, you know, activist judges, terrible. Can you give us some examples of how this court has, as you say, in its own primacy, 
governed from the bench and imposed a pro-corporate ideology and conservative resentment over social and demographic change? How have they been an activist court that they claim to be against? Yeah, um, there are a lot of ways in which uh, the, the, this version, this this um, this um, in, extremely conservative uh, version of the of the Roberts Court has, has interfered in in the day to day process of governance, which is what I mean when I when I talk about governing from the bench. You know, the daily running of the country, uh, stepping into um, a role more often filled by the legislative and executive branches that set policy um, about how about how the country shall be run day to day and saying, we like this policy, we don't like that policy, uh-huh. and, and, and contriving constitutional reasons um, why you know, a result favored by conservatives must, must be reached uh, judicially. Mm-hmm. We, we saw it in, in you know, uh, the, the Bruin uh, gun control case where um, uh, the court overturned a, a very longstanding New York State law um, uh, to to sort of achieve a, a conservative priority um, in in especially in um, other cases of government regulation like um, West Virginia EPA on the extent to which the government can limit CO two emissions to try to slow down climate change. Um, generally speaking, the court has has um, really been trying to take it to the administrative state as much as it can. Um, through a new model of jurisprudence that sets a very high bar for what constitutes a appropriate delegation of Congress's authority to the executive branch, um, which um, means that it's much harder to um, convince the court these days that um, that uh, this or that regulation, the kind of thing that keeps our our, our air and water clean, uh, our food safe to eat, um, our financial markets well regulated, um, to convince the court that those sort of things are are permissible as delegations of Congress's power to the executive branch through the under the Constitution. And what that does is generally it enforces, um, you know, uh, a, a priority for government's role in daily life that is inherently more conservative, where um, we see, uh, thanks to the court's new review of this this paradigm, um, uh, the the, the government forced to step back from um, the the day-to-day work it does to um, set a level playing field in markets, to, to make sure that the products we buy and consume are safe, and to make sure that uh, we continue to live on a planet that is habitable, ultimately. Hmm. They, they seem to have gone in the rather opposite direction in, with, uh, with great vigor, as uh, John Kennedy would say. And as, as we've mentioned, the Supreme Court, again, the word supreme, is supposed to be singularly above politics and not swayed by public opinion as the other branches are supposed to be. Well, let me ask about that. I mean, my liberal father, I was very lucky to have a liberal uh, Democrat father. He always had faith in the independence 
of the justices. It's seen from examples in his lifetime where a conservative president appointed a justice who turned out to be a bit of a surprise, turned out to be fairly liberal and independent. And, and when I was growing up, the court consistently expanded individual rights, and we had faith in the court in that it was because it was separate and it was supreme from the other uh, things that, that went on that uh, could be shaped by political uh, change and political pressure. So uh, we did hold the court in its singularity in very high esteem. So now in 2022 comes the Dobbs decision, which, as you know, did awaken a sleeping giant that the justices perhaps may have gone too far and cracked open a window for deeper reform. The overturning of Roe versus Wade has given moderates and liberals a new remarkably effective tool at restoring the rights taken away by the Roberts Court. But that's electorally. Is the court so insulated from public opinion that it still retains that air of untouchable supremacy? Or, again, that brings us back to the crack in the armor. Right. Um, I think those words, um, crack and cracking open the window and uh, chink in the armor, crack and chink are really the opposite. I mean, the operative, the operative words, because, um, uh, because, because the, 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 it is in most cases through electoral politics that, that major changes, or at least some of the, the bigger reforms that I'm chronicling this piece that are proposed by academics could take place. They, they would mostly have to be done through acts of Congress and Congress is, does not have the capacity right now to overcome the filibuster to totally overhaul the judiciary. Um, and furthermore, I mean, the, 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 as I argue in the piece, the, the court's reversal on the ethics code, it's the decision to impose one despite saying it never would. It, it proves that it's not untouchable um, but the the public outcry has to be overwhelming, and in the case of those scandals, um, the source of the outrage had a, a kind of nonpartisan valence to it that made it that makes it much harder to dismiss as liberal sour grapes. You know, it seems it seems like common sense that taking money from billionaires and not reporting it and not recusing when those same billionaires later have cases before the court. Seems like common sense that that's bad, um, and it, it it seems to me, and I'm I'm no expert. I should mention now that I'm not a lawyer either. I'm just a a journalist who has taken the time to to read a lot about a lot of this stuff. Um, but it, it seems to me that they they still feel that they have the leeway to make the kind of decisions. They being the conservative supermajority, mm. they feel they have the leeway to make the kind of decisions that they want to make in other kinds of cases where maybe slightly more than half the country is going to view uh, the outcome as an unacceptable outrage, but then another sizable portion will be indifferent or, or pleased about it. Um, so I think uh, uh, there there is a window for reform in that um, there are a lot of people angry, uh, especially about Dobbs. Um, the ethics code proves that um, uh, but that anger of the court can result in change on the court. Um, so the window, uh, I would argue, is is for um, for movement building to begin. 
for for people to start oh. to recognize the problem as um, a court that, um, and I would argue that it's sort of a two part problem. Yes, the court has been captured by an ideological supermajority mm-hmm. that is that is that is reaching decisions through through you know, motivated reasoning, but also over many decades, the court has, has grabbed a lot of power for itself. Mm. Um, so it's the question of how much power the court has and how it's being used. Um, yeah. How much power the, the court has, and uh, they do have a, a, a great deal of power. And I'm thinking about how you know, maybe the, uh, the ethics thing, uh, that the heat uh, got so in- intense that perhaps they did as little as they could get away with, sort of throwing the public a bone, knowing that the public was calling for some ethics changes, some, some rules with regard to you know, being bought and paid for by some powerful, super-rich special interests. So is that really going to make a difference? I don't know. It's perhaps a start. And you talk about movements. That's what makes real change in this country. There's no question that you know, it's not so much uh, electoral politics as movements that really make political change. If you just tuned yeah. in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Rob Wolf, an editor at the Washington Monthly. We're talking about how to fix the Supreme Court. And, you know, the, the question is, does the, is the court affected by public opinion? They're, they're supposed to be immune from that. I think, I think they think they're supposed to be immune from that. And the public support for and belief in the court... I have to believe was shaken significantly by those bizarre confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh. You know, I think when we think of Brett Kavanaugh, we all think of beer. You know, I somehow. In, in what ways may that have been? A he t- likes it. <laughs> he does. Yes. In what ways may that? I mean, and that's the image we get stuck with. How does that? How was that? Perhaps a tipping point for serious law scholars. The confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, as I wrote in the piece. Um, the, the two law professors who, who kicked off the, the, the present day iteration of this debate, because this is, this is a discussion that's been taking place for a long time. Um, what is the proper role of the Supreme Court? Does it have too much power? Um, is it insulated enough from partisan pressure? Or conversely, is it responsive enough to um, the political process? Uh, but the, the, the present day, the folks who kicked off the present day version of this debate um, it started with them watching the Kavanaugh hearings and watching um, the allegations against him, watching his responses to the allegations where he, uh, where he had his statements about how much he liked beer and, and how uh, this was somehow revenge from the Clintons for, I guess for Bush v. Gore. I'm not sure what, what the Clintons were supposedly getting revenge on him for, but anyway, those, um, those statements shocked a lot of people. And uh, in the case of Daniel Epps and Ganesh Sitaraman, uh-huh. um, two law scholars at um, Vanderbilt and Washington St. Louis, um, it inspired them to try to come up with um, a framework to insulate the court from partisan pressure. Um, so it was definitely an inspiration for this scholarly debate. And th- those two, Daniel Epps and Ganesh Siddharaman? Siddharaman. Siddharaman, thank you. Uh, yeah. They say, in, and this is from your piece, in a world 
where the Supreme Court is widely seen as just another political institution, how will people think about the law itself? Our fear is that such, in such a world, the very idea of law as an enterprise separate from politics will evaporate. First, I think the law has to be uh, quite separate. Uh, and the question is, what can be done uh, separate from, from politics, from electoral politics, from partisan politics? But it's seen today, the court is seen by many as an arm of the Republican Party, the Trump-Publican Party. Um, and we're looking at what can be done. We're going to discuss more about what can be done to restore the public trust. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt tried one solution, adding more justices to the Supreme Court, because there's nowhere in the Constitution that dictates how many members of the court there can be. Biden was under some pressure to do just that, but kind of backed away from it. What are the arguments for and against increasing the number of members of the court? And why is that not a durable fix? It's not a durable fix because you can just keep doing it. And because, um, uh, you know, if, if liberals um, pack the court um, when they have the votes to do so uh, in Congress, which, by the way, is, is pretty, pretty hard to get, but assuming they can, when liberals do that, um, conservatives can just go add some more justices um, when, when they have control. And what you get is uh, potentially is an ever-expanding court whose decisions feel basically determined on whoever had the most votes in Congress last. And uh, so that for those who prize judicial independence and, uh, and a sort of non-partisan valence to the court, that seems horrific. It seems like that's the end of the court as an inst independent institution. Wow. The liberals who want to pack the court say, well, they, they begin with the assumption that the, the court has been packed. Yes. Um, you know, the, the court has had in recent years, three, uh, hardline conservatives levered on through norm breaking, um, brinksmanship. Um, so, so they would argue that they are unpacking it or balancing it by mm -hmm. adding justices. But again, that really, you know, that's not going to make any difference to the conservatives who, who just as well might, um, repack it when they, when they have the opportunity to. So that's why, or the institutionalists, the people like Epson Sitaraman who want to restore respect in an impartial, nonpartisan court. They advocate for different frameworks that try to place the court beyond the reach of, of partisan uh -huh. control. By the way, not everybody uh, agrees. Others say that the court should be more responsive to, to politics and point out uh -huh. that throughout America's history, um, the court has been embroiled in in politics and that the, the ultimate shape and size of the present court was, was determined through political struggle. Mm. So even those assumptions are not beyond question. Yeah, boy, there has certainly been uh, political effects from the actions of the Supreme Court through the uh, last 250 years or so. That's for sure. What about, you bring up the idea of a rotating panel system. What is that and how would that work? And how's that as a possible fix? Panel systems for courts, um, they, for the Supreme Court, uh, I mean, they'll, they'll often come up as part of larger frameworks to insulate the part the court from partisan control. For instance, in, um, in the paper that really got uh, this present day dis, uh, debate started from uh, Dan Epps and Ganesh Raman. They proposed something called a Supreme Court lottery 
that would um, divide the court into nine member panels that um, hear cases every two weeks and then go back to write decisions. Um, and you take uh, the justices from those rotating panels from a much larger group. Yeah. Um, and what that does is, um, and, and since they're being selected randomly, although there would be some controls on on, on the sort of ideological balance of those random selections, um, but what you're doing by, by having a larger pool of justices and by um, having it be unpredictable mm-hmm. which particular justice is going to hear a particular case um, you know, it makes it much harder to install a permanent ideological majority um, uh, whose individual members' jurisprudence is well known. You know, we know what kind of arguments Clarence Thomas like, mm-hmm. likes or Samuel Alito likes, and a conservative lawyer arguing a case to them in hopes of establishing a friendly precedent can 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 read through their past decisions and tailor his arguments very carefully to try to reach you know this this pre-engineered result that's not possible if you don't know specifically who's going to uh-huh. hear your case uh-huh. interesting so that's the idea sort of like an, a, a lottery where you don't you don't know and that this sounds like it has some uh, some real potential there and by the way the circuit courts you scored the courts of appeals um, also have larger pools of judges who will who will hear um, cases on a semi-random basis? Uh, it's it's not like it hasn't been used uh, in the United States before. Well, precedent often matters when it comes to what happens in courts. Not always, but often does. And that's good to know that there is that precedent there. And there was, as you point out in your article, a rather intense reply to Epson Sitaraman writing in the California Law Review and Harvard's. Ryan Duffler and Yale Samuel Moyne offered a simpler plan for the court. Get out of the way. They wrote, saving the Supreme Court is not a desirable goal. Getting it out of the way of progressive reform is. Whoa, that's big. Their concern is that the changes would not address the court's outsized influence over progressive reform. What do they mean? How might that work? Talk about that, if you would, please. Yeah, this is sort of the big split among um, scholars now over uh, not only what specific policies might be good to reform the court, but also what kind of goal you're trying to achieve. Um, you could call Epson Sitaraman the the institutionalist school or the legitimacy school. They want to um, uh-huh. restore respect and trust in the court. They want to make sure that it is not seen as ideological. The, um, now, Ryan Durfler and Samuel Moyne want to, they would say, democratize the court. Mm. Um, they want it to be more responsive, um, if not to politicians, then to you know the popular will. Um, and they point out that, I mean, this is not their observation, but they're there, there's a common phrase used about the Supreme Court as sort of the dead hand of history. You know, there, there are people, there, there are people on the court who were appointed by Ronald Reagan, um, who represented a coalition that was in power 40 years ago and hasn't existed for, you know, much, for too much longer than that. So, um, it that is to say that um, 
unelected judges who serve for life um, are necessarily not going to reflect um, the changing um, views of the country and will often, and historically, I mean, the sort of the Warren court of, of the latter half of the 20th century that liberals often think of when they think of expansions of rights and right. they think of the Supreme Court. That was a historical aberration. Um, mm, mm. More often, um, the, the the Supreme Court has been um, um, sort of a, a ballast in in that it has mm-hmm. um, it has held down the country to to certain values um, that we see as core values, but often that means um, slowing the pace of reform. Mm. And um, in especially in um, around the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries, where um, you know the progressive movement was trying to establish uh, was trying to break the backs of the robber barons and establish a more equitable common economy, demonopolize the economy. The court stood in the way, and so the concern of these scholars today this democratizing school is that um, progressive movements are going to be, they're going to be necessarily of the moment and they will be, um, and they will probably be, they will entail change from, from past, from values of the past and they will be reflected through the elected branches and that means that they will necessarily be put into conflict with courts. Um, and that's why they call for reforms that actually disempower the court rather than put it back up on the pedestal. Interesting. Interesting point of view. And and the idea of the Supreme Court as a ballast, you know, that, that brings up the image of that there is a ballast, that there is something basic that can uh, keep the ship of state from rocking too crazy, that there is something there and that the Supreme Court can be that. But it's really... Yeah, that would be the positive sort of outlook on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's unclear that... It reflects that, our core values and enforces those and, yeah, like, keeps us going in the right direction. And that's... It, it hasn't certainly always done that. I mean, there were the whole Taney uh, decision back, you know, with regard to slavery uh, and, and enabling slavery. That was the popular opinion at that time, that the people of color were inferior uh, and that, you know, you don't, it, it's kind of dangerous to have the public will be uh, calling the shots when it comes to what the laws are, what the basic laws, what the... Uh, Constitution is there to protect. It's it can be a little bit dangerous, I would think, given the vicissitudes of uh, the public opinion. Yeah, I think um, the founders were concerned about mob rule, um, uh-huh. as some put it, and um, did put checks into place uh, where you know elected or unelected representatives could, um, with perhaps um, a certain amount of personal ris- wisdom, could. Uh, could um, could prevail over pure direct democracy, but um, right. we've also seen how that can go wrong. Mob rule can be, uh, I mean, there, there's been a lot of concern over too much democracy. That's why we have representative democracy as opposed to uh, real participatory democracy. And one fairly simple question I have, I, I always had the impression that Congress can 
at least in theory, nullify or overrule Supreme Court decisions. Can they not? This is where it gets, it's where you want to be talking to a constitutional lawyer. Uh Um, But I I think it depends on the situation. And I think functionally, usually, um, or maybe almost always, the answer is no, it it can't nullify or overrule Supreme Court decisions. Because, um, I mean, uh, some of what the court does is statutory interpretation, where it interprets what, what does a law that Congress passed mean and how does it apply to the facts in front of us? What did Congress mean when it wrote this law? If, if the court um, possibly misinterprets a law passed by Congress, then yes, in theory, Congress can respond by um, passing clarifying legislation to say, no, we meant this. Um, but in practice, uh, Congress has, stuff, has trouble getting stuff done. Yeah, um, it does not have an easy path through the filibuster to pass laws. And so um, the court is actually often left as the final word on what a um, law passed by Congress means, which is a little counterintuitive. And there are some reforms that have been proposed that would um, clarify that. Now, if uh, we're talking about judicial review rather than um, statutory inter- interpretation, if if the Supreme Court um, strikes down a law passed by Congress saying that this is contrary to the Constitution, and then um, Congress votes to essentially say, no, we we nullify this, we disagree, and we say that it, it is constitutional, I think what you have there is a, a constitutional crisis because two branches of government are, are at odds over what their basic uh, uh, constitutional powers are. And I don't know of a great example in, in history uh, where this has happened, although it may have done before. Again, not a historian or a lawyer. Well, what about with, with the uh, Dodds decision? Isn't there a movement to have uh, Congress, I mean, I don't know if this would work, to have Congress uh, guarantee uh, reproductive rights, whereas the court took it away? I mean, wouldn't codifying that... Codifying row, yeah. Yeah, codifying row. I mean, it's not saying that the court was wrong. It's just changing the law. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a response to the court that, that kind of contradicts what the court did. What the court did in Dobbs was take back a right that it had previously discovered um, rather than you know invalidate an act of Congress. So Congress still has the power to say, yes, we pass a law saying that you cannot um, absolutely forbid for abortion anywhere in the country, um, mm-hmm. which is different from Congress having previously passed a law and then the court having said uh, your law is constitutional and Congress saying, no, it is. <laughs> yeah, that is that is different for sure. And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about something really important to our democracy, the Supreme Court. Our guest is editor of the Washington Monthly, Rob Wolf, who's written a piece in the Washington Monthly, How to Fix the Supreme Court, suggesting that the time has come to connect popular anger over the conservative supermajority with concrete ideas for reform. And it's interesting these days uh, how much one has to be a star. I mean, Joe Biden is not a TV star. 
There's no question about that. You can say what you will about him. I think he's a pretty good president, but he's not a TV star. To become elected leaders, it seems candidates must be celebrities. And you, and you raise a good point here, one that applies to both liberals and to the right. Cults of personality form around the court's biggest stars, whose jurisprudence has been warped by the need to cater to their fan bases. I mean, this is not uh, Taylor Swift here. Yeah, you know, there's the big star Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was a, a tremendous favorite along my side of the aisle. What's the danger of that political celebrity dynamic in the court system? It's not Taylor Swift, but the justices do sometimes cite her, um, especially Elena Kagan. Um, so look out for that. Um, yeah, I mean, the danger the danger is people not thinking themselves, um, following the the leader of the cult of personality wherever they go. That's what we see with Donald Trump. Um, once you identify with, with him, you have to say yes to whatever he puts forward, and that'll take you wherever he chooses to go, and that can lead you to scary places. Um, the, the context in which I cited this in the piece was a law review article by Susanna Sherry, um, constitutional law professor at Vanderbilt, who wrote a piece, uh, a law review article called Our Kardashian Court and, uh, and How to Fix It, I think was the rest of the right. title, um, where she pointed out that, um, I just said RBG, but but others as well have have cult, have acquired fan bases, much in the way that um, regular celebrities, although I, I would say they probably are regular celebrities at this point, <laughs> do and um it affects their it affect it leads them to make public statements that they might not other otherwise make it leads them to make appearances um as as kind of celebrity figures at public events some of the newly appointed conservative justices have appeared at overtly political events such as campaign style pressers um, with Mitch McConnell in his home state, uh-huh. um, at Federalist Society galas where they're feted and applauded, and um, you know, it it also affects their their actual judicial writing. Um, at sure. least this this scholar um, Susanna Sherry argues that it does. Um, you've we've seen an uptick in separate opinions in Supreme Court decisions where you see justices writing just to get their personal views on the matter out there mm. you know that can lead to what you might um, think of as junk opinions where a justice just sort of writes a concurring opinion to uh the the main decision that does not really make mm-hmm. any clear distinctions with it but they just want to make clear to you know the fans that, uh, that they really care about this one or they might lead to like really out there extreme um, kind of the writing like Clarence Thomas's um, concurrence in, in Dobbs where he called for all sorts of rights in addition to the right to abortion to be to be taken away uh, next. Um, so yeah, it can, it's a, and, and one it's of a the, strange road it can lead you down. Well, one of the big problems with human government is egos. <laughs> if we didn't yeah. have egos, uh, I, I believe it was... Uh, uh, Harry uh, Truman, who said, "It's amazing how much you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit," and uh, it, it, people needing to do that—that that, and it kind of feeds on itself. 
and being a star, being a celebrity, and having a fan base—it's difficult to to avoid. You know, it's it's a very attractive uh, uh, prospect to to be a star, to have you know a fan base. But what does that do to the law itself, which is supposed to be above that? It's supposed to be serene and neutral, as you say. And it's it's uh, kind of a I don't know how what you deal with that. And getting back to uh, what can possibly be done, and we need to do something because it can't keep going like it's been going. Um, there was you say one idea of progressive era politicians, like one of my favorites through the years, fighting Bob LaFollette, was jurisdiction stripping as a check on the judiciary. What was that? What does that mean, jurisdiction stripping? And how might that work? Yeah, this particular example came up um, during that period I mentioned where, um, um, you know, the progressive movement came up um, as a expression of the popular will to try to create a, a fairer, more equal econ- economy in response to the Gilded Age. And there was this Supreme Court um, that routinely stood in the way of these um, of these popularly supported changes and struck them down. And in this case, um, I mean, the, the, the United States struggled for, for decades to pass child labor laws. Right. Um, and two times um, the Supreme Court struck them down. And one of LaFollette's, um, and he was part of a whole group of senators who, who supported these ideas. Um, one of the ideas was to strip the court over jurisdiction on this particular matter. So to ah. say to the Supreme Court, mm. you cannot rule on this. Um, and that sounds pretty extreme. It does. <laughs> um, it actually happens to be um, afforded in the Constitution as a power of, of, of Congress. Um, the Supreme Court is given what's called original jurisdiction um, by the Constitution over um, a specific set of things that are cases that always must be covered by the Supreme Court, which include dis- disputes involving the states and involving what it said, what it calls certain high-ranking ambassadors or ministers, including ambassadors. Um, and then the court's appellate dis- jurisdiction, that is to say its, its ability to hear appeals on all manner of other cases can be regulated by Congress. So Congress can, can set... Um, rules on on how and when and, and what kind of cases um what kinds of appeals of other matters um mm. the supreme court can hear um and so it came up during that time as, as a check to say um you can't stand in the way of 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 the expression of the popular will um through child labor laws mm. um, and all manner of other you know economic regulation um, I don't believe it was put into effect, but it did, um, it helped to animate that political argument and provide expression to this, you know, very large group of, of people who were trying to, um, carve out a place for themselves in, in a system so dominated by the ultra wealthy. <clears throat> and it's coming up today again. Uh, yeah, as as uh, someone said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does uh, echo uh, and uh, reverberate. And there's been pressure through the recent years uh, from the left. Senator Bernie Sanders supported a plan to rotate 
right-wing justices down to lower courts. Interesting. I don't know how you define right-wing. Elizabeth Warren also got into the act. And so the pressure was on President Joe Biden, and he did form a commission after he was elected, which might have been the start of a much-needed conversation. Well, what happened with that? I mean, a a lot could come out of a, a, a commission. What happened with that? What did the commission offer? Yeah, you got this really interesting moment during the 2020 uh, Democratic primaries where these very wonky intellectual ideas um, were actually peeking into the mainstream. Um, They were showing up in Democratic debates. The candidates you mentioned were um, staking, each staking out their own position on what to do with the court. Pete Buttigieg was uh, openly citing the Yale Law Journal at spaghetti dinners in New Hampshire. Um, And so there was this momentum. Joe Biden ends up winning the primary, winning the election. He establishes a commission that has all the big names on the right and left um, in in constitutional law. I don't know about all, but like a a star-studded commission in constitutional law to look at the ideas that are out there and talk about um, what what visions for the court are are there, what reforms are there, and, and how feasible are they. Unfortunately, um, he or whoever in the White House was managing this also directly instructed them not to reach any conclusions. Mm. Um, they So they did a great job pulling together all the evidence. They released a um, 300-page report, and I'm not sure that includes all the addenda with testimony and stuff. In fact, I think it doesn't. Um, they released this giant report at the end of uh, 2021 that you could just read on its own and it'll sum up the issue for you. Um, but it doesn't tell you where to go next. Um, and it sort of went away after that. Mm. You know, um, A lot of other stuff was happening. Um, the, the Democrats who... Uh, right end of 2021 they still controlled um yeah congress um were um were working on on other big laws uh infrastructure bill um what the the what right. eventually became the ira so they they had moved on the political momentum hmm. well, was... chance though, to connect the popular i was yeah, reminded anger, of uh, when when i was in the uh the state senate and how we'd come up with uh 10-year highway plans and generally generally a lot of work would go into them and then they'd sit up on a shelf and gather dust and that's mm. that's sometimes what happens in a in a large bureaucracy which the federal government obviously is again if you just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're talking to rob wolf editor at the washington monthly about what can be done about the supreme court the uh, faith in the supreme court is not exactly what it used to be Someone actually, you mentioned in your article, someone suggested cutting off the air conditioning budget for the Supreme Court. What about that is actually serious? <laughs> this came up at a conference in Georgetown, uh, not last fall, but uh, fall of 2022, with a lot of these reformers who I quote in the piece. They all showed up in person to um, to discuss reform ideas. And one of them um, threw out um, the idea that, you know, direct retaliation, not sort of, uh, yeah, well, reject re- direct political retaliation against um, the justices themselves or against the running of the court itself should be an idea 
that people should consider. And, you know, he said, um, you know, should we be cutting off funding for, should Congress be cutting off funding for law clerks to express its displeasure with the court or should it cut off the air conditioning? And there was a little chuckle in the room. I happened to be at the conference um, when he said this, but then mm. uh, Ryan Durfler, the, the guy um, mentioned earlier who, who wanted to disempower the court, he broke in and he said, no, this is, this, this should be a serious idea because this is a political contest. Um, the court should, in fact, not be seen as above um, mm. uh, politics, which are, you know, the tools of expression of what the American people want. And um, that should be on the table. I I don't know if I agree. I don't know mm. if I disagree. But that idea is, is out there. Well, if we got to suffer, maybe they should suffer as well. Huh. I guess that's the thought, uh, or at least in service of getting them to do something different. Well, one of the one another idea is what uh, Sitaraman proposed: a Congressional Review Act. Is that or is that a real possibility? What do you think about that? The Congressional Review Act is um, a bill um, that is actually before Congress, or was perhaps in its earlier session. Um, um, uh, sponsored by, I believe, Sheldon Whitehouse and Probably. Senator Cortez Masto. Um, uh, but the idea, I, I, I think, originally comes from Sidaram, and it's, it's just a version of the existing Congressional Review Act, which is a law on the books that allows Congress to quickly respond as a fast track to its own procedures to respond to executive branch regulations. So if some agency messes it up and passes, sets a rule that doesn't make sense. Congress can very quickly say, without having to go through the filibuster, can say, no, 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 you need to do it differently. And in the same way, uh, this law, if it were passed, would give Congress a quick way to respond to Supreme Court decisions. We mentioned earlier um, that in terms of legislative interpretation, because Congress has trouble passing laws, it, it inadvertently is leaving the Supreme Court the final word on what Congress meant when it passed a law. This would be an answer to that. Wow. And there's, of course, the idea of term limits. I, I have opposed term limits when I was in the uh, state Senate because I felt like we have term limits. They're called elections. But the Supreme hmm. Court doesn't. They do not have term limits. They're, they're on for life, like, like King Charles is, I guess. Uh, what about the pluses and minuses of the idea of term limits for the Supreme Court justices? Yes, well, you pointed out an interesting difference between legislators and judges, which is that um, at least when you're talking about the Supreme Court, there is not um, a chance for the public to um, evaluate how the judge has been, has, has been doing right. and say, yes, we would like you to keep on in this office. Um, uh, term limits are, are, as far as I understand, have have pretty wide support popular support uh -huh. they're widely in use most other um, developed countries have either term limits or uh, a retirement age or some combination thereof for their constitutional high courts um, there are some constitutional issues the the uh, with the u.s constitution that that might make them hard to implement uh, the Constitution says judges uh, shall serve during good behavior. And mm -hmm. that phrase is generally taken to mean for life, um, right. as long as they're well behaved. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who knows what that means? Really? Um, 
but then there are there's sort of workarounds that people have come up with like oh let's let's put um let's let's set the term limited justices to senior status which means that they don't automatically get appointed to hear cases but maybe they're available as backups if there's a vacancy or a recusal or something um, the constitutionality of that is unclear but also implementation is very important if you uh, put a term limit system in place but you don't start rotating justices off every two years you just wait for the present ones to retire it could take decades yeah, to achieve a term limited court which doesn't seem much use to anybody and talk about decades. There, there are certain things that change through the years, and some things don't change. You, in your essay, you cite Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chat of March 9th, 1937, which sounds a lot like it could be uttered this very day. What did he say in that that is applicable today? He talked about, he, 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 I picked out one quote, but he, he said many things in that chat that, that, that sound surprisingly current. But he said, what I mentioned was that he said that the court had, quote, improperly set itself up as a third house of Congress, a super legislature, reading into the Constitution words and implications which are not there and which were never intended to be there, sort of in the vein of, of how we started this conversation, talking about governing from the bench. That's what they've been doing, I guess. And uh, Roosevelt, you, you end your essay saying, uh, quoting Roosevelt, it is the American people themselves who are in the driver's seat. I think most people don't believe it. I wonder if that's true today and how realistic, maybe it does seem like there's more and more of a, of a pressure to change the Supreme Court. How possible do you think that is these days? It depends on so many things that it's no. very hard to say. You know, there are also like questions about whether we continue to live in a largely democratic system after, yeah, really. um, you know, a year from now, after after um, whoever is put into office um, um, by the upcoming election takes office. Um, but um, what is true is that um, an increasing number of people have recognized that there is some fundamental problem with um the way the court's role in this constitutional system is working and the, that anger has been expressed through, you know, um, elections and through these, these incredible abortion referenda that are passing with resounding majorities in red states. Uh, there are a lot of people who care about this. And my, my goal in writing the piece was to try to connect those people to this other discussion about um, how the court can work better so that they have access to ideas that can address the fundamental problem, which is a court that has sort of run off in its own direction. Hmm. So these are the ideas that could be used to put um, people back in the driver's seat. Well, let's hope we can put people back in the driver's seat. And your magazine has uh, something to do with that, keeping an informed public. Of course, the right wing, that's the last thing they want is an informed public that can actually participate in decision-making and knowing what the heck they're doing. If people uh, want to look at uh, more of what you write in the Washington Monthly, uh, what can you suggest uh, that comes on that internet thingy? <laughs> Sorry, what is the question? The question is, how can people look at the Washington Monthly on the internet? Oh, um, please go to WashingtonMonthly.com. Um, it's pretty straightforward. That is our website, and you can find this story and many others about the court, about um, 
social mobility and higher education, about anti-monopoly, about voting rights. You can find them all there at WashingtonMonthly.com. Oh, sounds like an important voice for the future. Well, things are always interesting. No lack of things to talk about. Rob Wolf, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, and uh, let us do all what we can to keep democracy alive. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure. Clarence Thomas thinks his actions are of no import, although he's taken millions from claimants who came before the court. Luxury vacations, private schools, trips on jets, and trips on yachts. The things he plots, undisclosed despite the rules, the public that he thinks he fools as a judge. He is their sots. The Supreme Court turns a blind eye to its self-corrupting course Any rules that apply, they're designated to enforce Self-regulation, not a strong point with the human race They can be fired from their jobs so they don't need to say Seems Supreme Court justices have at least one billionaire that they ride around on just with and they never pay a fare. They always sing the same old song, innocent as a dove. They say that they've done nothing wrong. Who does that remind you If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.